Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello listeners, welcome to the Tax Wrap Podcast, episode 194. I'm your host Steve Burnham. Now today we're going to deal with um, one of those inevitables we keep hearing about, death and taxes. So we deal with tax quite a lot, so um, it's death's turn. Uh, in regarding, uh, specifically regarding SMSFs and uh, the duties, duties of trustees and all the uh, at times complicated uh, steps that have to be taken to be quite prepared. Uh, I speak with uh, Gabby Rusu, our SMSF specialist, and she'll t- she tells us all about it. Hi Gabby, thanks for being on the podcast. Hi Steve, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, look, uh, I believe today um, we're going to talk about what happens to an SMSF after a member dies. So um, that's a, a, a dire topic, but one that needs to be discussed, I think, and one that need people need to be to think of, really. Yes, absolutely. That is definitely an issue that needs to be discussed, and uh, ideally needs to be discussed prior to a member's death. So yeah. then, when um, member of the fund dies, everybody knows exactly what needs to be done yeah. after upon death. Um, so um, I should start by saying that generally when a member of an SMSF dies, the yep. member actually stops to be a trustee or a director of the corporate trustee under most self-managed fund deeds and company constitution. Well, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, because obviously they uh, are no longer trustees or directors of the company, uh, there is a question here of uh, whether there is someone that can step in and uh, act as a trustee or director on their behalf. Uh, who is that person? What needs to happen for that person to have the power to decide on uh, how the fund is run yeah. after the member's death? And mainly, mainly uh, the person that's going to have a decision in respect to uh, the way the um, uh, death benefits of the deceased member uh, is going to be distributed to the beneficiaries. Yeah. So, so are, we, are we speaking about a one-member fund then strictly or is it any fund? Um, it, it actually applies to uh, all funds. It doesn't matter if you have just one uh, a fund with a single member or a fund with more than uh, uh, one member. Right. It's always a question of who replaces the, the deceased because you okay. may have, obviously it becomes a problem when you have a, a sole member fund. It's even more imperative to know exactly who's going to uh, control the fund yeah. uh, given, given that uh, you really have a fund with no one uh, looking after the payment of the debt benefit and uh, administration of the fund. Yeah, so, yeah. This, as I said, would apply in all instances here. And under the, the superannuation rules, um, it is possible for the illegal personal representative of the deceased. This would be the executor yep. of the estate. So they may be appointed as a trustee of the fund or a director of the company in place of the member. Uh, it can be done for a limited period of time. Usually the time starts, and it, can, it can cover the period from death to the time when the death benefit commences to be paid yep. to the beneficiary. One thing people need to be aware of is that this is not going to be possible 
uh, I mean, the appointment of the legal personal representative is only going to be um, possible if the trustees governing the fund and the corporate trustees constitution allow for such an appointment. Oh, I see. So where you have a fund that has a corporate trustee, then you have to have the trustee governing the fund and the corporate trustees constitution and the corporations act. They will all need to be considered with respect to the appointment of the LPR being the le- uh, legal personal representative. Right. Um, so they will dictate how the trustee and director of the corporate trustee would, uh, would be replaced. Yeah, can, can Another I, thing... No, so yeah, I was sorry. just going to ask, um, does the person's personal will come into the scene here? Uh, yeah, the person's will, it's really not relevant when it comes to the death of the member in the fund because the, the will, it's... Um, um, doesn't really have any say in respect to the control of the fund ah. and also in respect to the assets that are um, left in the fund. Okay, so it's, uh, it's more the, the trust. Yes, more- the will is only going to become relevant if the trustee uh, decides to uh, pay the death benefits of the deceased member to the estate. So that's when the, oh, the will is going to kick in. So yep. until then, you really need to look at um, uh, the trustee, the entity controlling the fund, right. uh, before you can actually distribute that in accordance with the will. And it, as I said, it's only going to be relevant if the benefit is paid to the estate of the deceased. I see. That's fine. Okay. But uh, one thing that it's important here to note in respect to the LPI being, being appointed um, in place of the member is the fact that even though the law allows you and the trustee or the corporate constitution may allow, you for such, may allow for such an appointment, is it important to note that under the legislation an LPI is not automatically appointed? as a trustee or a director in place of the member. So it just merely allows you to appoint them as such in order to satisfy the definition of a self-managed fund. I see. But they will, they will uh, have to officially be appointed as such. So they would have to satisfy some uh, um, other hurdles such as consenting in writing, depending on the and the constitution of the corporate trustee maybe some other things that they would have to put in place yeah. before they can actually act as such. All right. So, so, so uh, uh, once an LPR, well, once that, that is determined, then um, yeah. can you tell me what happens to the deceased member's benefits? So are they left in super or what happens to the assets? Yeah, that is a very good question, Steve. Um, one thing that everyone needs to be aware of, especially after 1st of July 17, we made very clear that 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 benefits can't remain in the fund, so they have to be paid out really? to a beneficiary. When I say they have to be paid out, um, as we know, we can pay benefits as a lump sum, or we can pay that bene- uh, benefits as a pension. Oh, yeah. So it doesn't matter which, uh, you know, the form of the benefit here, that can be lump sum or can be pension, that would classify as a payment of a death benefit. Okay. The payment must occur as soon as practicable after death, Yep. Uh, one thing is for sure, if you, for instance, decide to give the benefits to your spouse, you can't just uh, do an internal rollover transfer between the interest of the deceased and the spouse's interest. So you oh. can't just uh, keep that money in the fund. It has to physically be paid out if it's a lump sum that benefit or if it's going to be a pension, then you would have to 
set up a pension in the name of the dependent yeah. who is entitled to that pension and who uh, is supposed to get the benefit. Um, and that would be the only time when you can say, yes, I have paid the benefit to the beneficiaries of the disease. Okay. Is it, is it always straightforward? I mean, does it, is there situations where perhaps a payment is directed to a, towards another super fund or...? Um, uh, yes, that, um, Steve, it's a very good question because, because after 1st of July 2017, you may be actually able to roll over the um, deceased members' benefits from one fund to another. Right. Like, for instance, if you, let's say, the dependent who is entitled to uh, that benefit pension, they may not be a member of the fund that... Um, uh, holds the benefits for the deceased, so yep. they may have their own account with another superannuation fund. Uh, what the law allows you to do, you can transfer, you can roll over these benefits from the deceased fund's account to the beneficiary's account in another fund, but you can't just roll over that benefit and leave it with the dependent in the other fund in accumulation phase. So once, once it's uh, received by the the, uh, the receiving fund practically would have to make sure that that debt benefit is actually paid to beneficiaries. So that, again, would be like commencing the pension uh, right, right away from the receiving fund. Right. Or later on, if they want to commute that particular pension, then commute the pension and pay it out as a lump sum. I so see. either yeah. way, you can't leave it in the fund. Okay. All right. Well, that, that, that can make up for a bit of money. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, if you have a younger dependent who isn't ready to receive, start receiving a pension, um, what do they do? Yeah, look, I mean, that is uh, obviously in respect to a young dependent, you have to be mindful of the rules that would not allow a debt benefit to be paid to a dependent who is not classified as a tax dependent. So here we have only uh, spouses of the deceased and children under 18 and other certain individuals that may be, um, may be um, dependents under the tax. Um, uh, under the tax um, um, act, right. um, they are the only ones who can receive a pension. So, if you are, for instance, uh, for instance, an uh, financially independent uh, ch- child of the deceased who is over eighteen, you really don't have a choice, and you kind of have to pay out the benefit to to that uh, dependent yep. uh, as a lump sum. So, they won't be able to keep it in the in the fund as uh, as a pension. Right, okay. Because of the fact that they don't meet the definition of a dependent. Yeah, yeah. Does, does that mean that there's sort of inefficiencies tax-wise? I mean, having to make payments from the fund, does that sort of mean that tax will have to be paid at some stage? Uh, yes. Uh, if, it really depends on um, uh, who gets the benefit and also uh, depends on the form of the benefit, so whether it's paid as a lump sum or whether it's paid as a, as a pension. So I mentioned before uh, tax dependents. Uh, these are usually the ones that it would, uh, it would include your spouse. Yep. Uh, it would be a child under 18, any person who has an interdependency relationship just before the member dies and any person who was financially dependent uh, on the disease just before they died. So all these individuals, if they receive the benefit as a lump sum, it's all tax-free. So it doesn't matter the components of the benefit, 
they can be split between tax-free, taxable components. The whole lot is paid to them tax-free. Okay. Uh, if it's paid to the to these individuals as a pension, again, uh, very likely for for that to be tax-free if the either the dependent or the beneficiary was over 60 when the pension started. Right. The, the pension, again, is going to be paid to them uh, tax-free. However, if uh, you have a non-tax dependent receiving the super benefit, um, then there is going to be tax to be paid on the taxable component, and that tax would have to be withheld uh, and paid by the superannuation provider. So if the benefit is paid directly to the dependent from the fund, the fund pays the tax, and then the dependent receives the net amount. Right. Uh, and there is another instance when you can pay, as I said before, you may be able to pay, so if the decision is made for the benefit to be paid to the estate and then paid to beneficiaries, then the whole benefit is paid to the estate, so there is no tax withheld by the fund, but when the estate receives the benefit, they would ascertain whether there is any tax to apply to the benefit when it's paid to the beneficiary right. of the disease. So you may have, again, the same situation that in the estate they may pay it to a tax dependent. It all goes to them tax-free. If it happens to be a non-tax dependent, then you'll have those uh, tax consequences as if the benefit was paid directly from the fund. The only difference, if you pay it from the estate, yep. there is one thing you don't have to pay, there is no medical levy attached to the taxable component. Oh, okay. So it might actually save a bit of money yeah. if you have a non-tax dependent receiving the benefit through the estate of the disease. All right. So, so for, yeah. for our listeners that, that have um, SMSF clients out there, then Gabby, what yeah. what's the... What's your, your advice? What is the best way to have the fund structured or what's the best safeguards uh, in the case the worst happens and a member does die? H- how should a fund be set up to get the best benefits out of, uh, or, you know, the most advantageous result? Yeah, look, it, it really depends on the um, planning. The estate planning is extremely important. So prior to members' death, they really need to consider the, the situation and if they have blended families or if they um, uh, need to consider uh, beneficiaries from previous marriages, it's very important for them to to leave clear instructions. So if there is a need for a binding nomination, so that they might need to consider that, obviously um, it's not a requirement to have binding that benefit nominations put in place, uh, but uh, they might come handy if the um, member is not um, is not 100% sure that the benefits will be paid to the right beneficiary. Oh, right. That being said, you have to be very careful with finding that benefit nominations. They have to be valid to be to be actually followed right. by the trustee by the surviving trustees. So you have to make sure that they are in accordance with the trustee governing the fund. They um, are obviously signed, dated, and uh, uh, the wording on those binding nominations is also very important because many many binding nominations in the past have been challenged uh-huh. and some of them have been deemed as not being valid. So hence the reason the intended beneficiaries of those nominations have actually ended up with no money paid. Really? Gosh. Because of that. Yes. You mentioned, yeah. You mentioned blended families. Um, I know we recently had a, yeah. a workshop on blended families and um, estate planning. It's be- becoming um, 
quite a consideration. You've got to really take into account all the possibilities, don't you? It really seems. Oh, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's an estate planning that needs to be reviewed uh, on a regular basis because you may have a very good estate planning put in place when your kids were all minors, mm. you're under 18. If you don't review this in 10, 20 years' time, the whole strategy, obviously, is not going to work because right. now the the entities or the, the beneficiaries that you nominated to receive certain things from the fund, they might actually be uh, classified in a different category and then tax-wise, they might not be the beneficiaries that uh, would benefit most from yeah, the, yeah. the payment of the benefit. So it is worth getting some advice from an estate planning specialist and uh, doing some calculations uh, to show that um, each strategy that uh, has been implemented is still uh, valid and yep. effective. So, as I said, reviewing the estate planning strategies, reviewing binding nominations that you put in place uh, previously, uh, it's one of the key um, measures here. Mm. Uh, because we've seen, uh, again, in the past, we've seen situations when you had binding that nominations uh, that would direct the benefit to uh, the spouse yep. of the member. A um, few years later, the binding nomination was actually put in place an, as a non-binding nomination, meaning that was not really supposed to lapse. So uh, the trustee allowed for such nominations. So that was the type of nomination that was put in place. Right. The member never bothered to review that particular nomination. The member died a few years ago. In the meantime, he actually got divorced. So his wife was not really classified as a uh, tax dependent. No, the no. nomination clearly indicated that she would get his benefit as a pension. Now, because she uh, does not meet the definition of a tax dependent on his debt, he was, she was not entitled to receive the benefit as a pension. So right. The only way that she could get the benefit was as a lump sum. So the whole strategy that the uh, member put in place when he was alive obviously didn't work. Mm -hmm. The biggest problem was that uh, in the meantime, the uh, member actually got remarried ah. so to have a binding nomination that would leave all the money to your previous wife. So she was a seat dependent. She was actually entitled to the benefit, not as a pension, but as a lump sum. Right, right. Uh, but the fact that he did not review that, renew that nomination created quite, a, quite an issue for his well, family and his yeah. uh, current wife. And uh, he also had uh, kids from previous... Uh, uh, from the previous marriage, and he had kids in the, the current uh, you one. know, with the second wife, with the current wife. Yeah. So uh, those are the situations that would highlight the need for these estate planning strategies to be reviewed on a regular basis. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, even with the binding nominations, for instance, that are only supposed to last every three years, each time when you have circumstances such as, you know, your divorce, your wife, or you remarry, or you have kids from another, or you have um, another kid, or, you know, even if you, if you don't have blended families, if you had nominations that would cater for the two of your kids, and then you have another another child, right. probably worth considering the whole strategy to make sure that all your children are included in the estate planning strategy. Yeah, yeah. So this so is why. Yeah, no, it's something to, to review every now and then. It, it's hard to remember all the yeah. things that you have to do, of course, as the years go by. Um, Gabby, exactly. you, you mentioned lump sums, um, which just reminded me about uh, a little while ago. There was the introduced was a transfer balance cap. Um, yes. Do, wh wh what effect does that have on the payment of death benefits? Uh, 
Yes, uh, that is actually um, one of those uh, issues that until July 2017, nobody really thought uh, twice when they, they had they could have millions in the in the fund. Everything could be actually passed on to the surviving spouse as a pension. Right. It was no need to uh, sell assets or uh, reduce the balance in retirement phase. So now, after 1st of July 17, uh, death benefit pensions would now count to the surviving spouse 1.6 million. Oh, uh, really? Balance cap. Yes. So this being the cap, which is obviously going to uh, limit the amount that they can have in retirement phase or well, in full pension phase, which yep. would get uh, an extension on the earnings of the assets supporting this pension. So this limit now may force benefits to come out as a lump sum to the surviving spouse because the law obviously still requires the super benefit to be paid out as yeah. soon as practicable after person's death. So if you have more than 1.6, you can um, uh, you you may be able to keep 1.6 in pension phase for the surviving spouse, but anything that's above that amount would have to come out as a lump sum. Yeah, oh, I see. You can see here the issue for a fund may have just um, properties and not too, too many other liquid, uh, not many liquid assets such as shares that they can sell oh, yeah. to... Um, fund the lump sum that is in excess of the 1.6. Also, the 1.6 million transfer balance cap, um, it actually applies to all the pensions that a uh, beneficiary may have in the oh, fund. Oh, really? If you've got a few in funds, the, I see. Yes, so right. you can have um, a pension that you receive um, your own pension that you receive from a superannuation fund or from multiple superannuation funds, they would really all count towards the transfer balance cap. So that means that if your spouse has already reached the 1.6 million cap, uh, they might actually have to pay out the entire debt benefit to the, uh, um, as a lump sum. Okay. So that obviously would have uh, an even lower amount that um, even a larger amount that needs to be paid out and leave superannuation. There are a few strategies here that can be um, can be taken into consideration okay, depending yep. on the circumstances. Like for instance, when you have a spouse, they may have their own uh, pensions um, in order for those pensions to, um, I mean, if you want to continue having a pension benefit and also keep as much as possible in superannuation, they may um, be able to commute their own pension. You know, when we commute the pension that the member has, you can actually commute the excess amount into an accumulation interest yeah, for that yep. member, which means that you can keep the balance of those pensions still in superannuation. So they may consider commuting their own pension and then starting a debt benefit pension with uh, deceased members' benefit. Benefit, yeah, that so they, they receive. Yep, use the 1.6 cap that they have to start that pension. and uh, But before before that, they would obviously have to either fully commute or just partially commute their pensions. Uh, they can keep whatever is left from the pensions in accumulation, but they can't keep more than 1.6 from the, from the debt benefit pension um, under their cap if they have... Um, in addition to the 1.6 that they if they reach the cap and they want to start uh, a debt benefit uh, pension then uh, they would have an excess yeah so yeah that i see can that can become a problem but, but at least something can be done I mean, but again you've got to think uh, ahead yeah. 
It's yes, I mean, the, the problem here is that really as a surviving spouse, you won't be able to have more than 1.6 superannuation. Many people felt that this is unfair because they are really penalized here for the fact that the um, spouse died. Like if you had a fund with two members in pension phase, you would have had a fund that would have had about 3.2 million. Well, yeah, yeah. In retirement phase, if one dies, you can't have more than 1.6. Yeah, that just halves um, it, gosh. For the surviving spouse. Yeah. So yeah. Um, definitely it's been a bit of a surprise when the law was implemented. Uh, everybody thought that uh, if they choose to put um, a cap on the retirement phase income, uh, that would be if, if a member dies and leaves benefits to their spouse, that would be in addition to their own cap. But right. no, uh, yeah. everything that you get from your spouse as a death benefit pension would be counted towards your cap together with your other pensions that yeah, you yeah. have already set up. I, yeah. I, I was just wondering, Gabby, you made me think, is the 1.6, is that going up at any stage with CPI? or that? Uh, it is going to be indexed in increments of about 100,000. It hasn't changed, however, since 1st of July 17. The ATO has just updated their website with uh, key superannuation thresholds. Uh, oh, well. There is a table under the transfer balance cap that shows 1.6 for this current year and also 1.6 for the next financial year. Oh, okay. So if something changes, uh, then that will be communicated. It's really entirely up to the government when that is going to change. Yeah. Uh, many people thought it's going to be indexed on an annual basis. No, that's not the case. So uh, it is only going to be indexed whenever they decide to... We're just awaiting, the, awaiting the pleasure of the regulator. Yeah. Uh, pretty much. That's yeah. exactly the way it is. So Did, you can have uh, that problem. And also, if you have someone that has already maximized their cap, meaning they already used that lifetime cap, oh, yeah. like at the moment it's 1.6, doesn't matter if the cap is going to be indexed and increased to, let's say, 1.7. Yep. They won't benefit from that indexation if they have fully utilized their cap, meaning oh. they can't start another 100,000 no, no. pension uh, simply because they had used their lifetime cup in the year when the cup was at just one point. Of course, yeah, they made that transaction at that stage. Yeah. Exactly. I see. Exactly. And it would be different, obviously, for people who had used uh, less than the 1.6. They may be able to use part of the indexation, but not the entire amount. If you've already used parts of your balance, like for instance, you used uh, half of the 1.6 cap, and then the cap gets indexed, you might get 50% of the increase. It yeah. really depends on how much you've used up to that point in time. Okay, yeah. okay. All right. It kind of makes sense, yeah. but it's kind of uh, still leaves a little bit to, to be desired, and hopefully um, things will be adjusted by the government to, to the betterment of the SMS sector and uh, as time goes on, but who knows? Yes, that's right. Mm. That's right. So this is going to be one of those things that we're going to have to wait and see yep. if there's going to be any changes to the cap, and uh, if, especially after a member's death and uh, the transfer of his benefits to the surviving spouse as a pension. Yep. So that is the major issue at this point in respect to payment of that benefit. Yep. But one thing that changed recently um, in respect to the way pensions. Uh, are treated under the transfer balance cap. Um, it's been something related to transition to retirement pensions that, uh, as we know from 1st of July 17, uh, transition to retirement income stream recipients who haven't retired yet, they yep. have a pension that is not in retirement phase. So right. that pen 
that tension can be converted to retirement phase in certain instances, like for instance, it's an automatic conversion if the member turns 65, oh, yeah. or if the member meets another condition of release such as um, retirement before turning 65, then that pension can be converted to retirement phase provided that the member notifies the trustees yep. about that condition of release being met. Now, initially, the way the legislation was, the new rules were um, drafted uh, from 1st of July 17, if you had a pension that was not in retirement phase when the member died, uh, and then the recipient, again, did not meet a condition of release, you couldn't really uh, start um, a pension that was in retirement phase if the pension was reversionary, uh, you could not automatically transfer it and consider that pension as being in retirement phase if the beneficiary did not meet their own condition of release. Okay. That well, has changed. What? What? Speaking about changes in legislation, that has been changed and addressed in the new law. So practically now any uh, trees recipient that died um, would have that pension transfer, that if the pension has been set up as reversionary to the spouse, that pension would convert to retirement phase when okay. the pension is transferred to them or paid, paid to them automatically after that, regardless yep. of whether they meet a condition of release or not. And that is a very important point here because you have that continuity of the pension and you also get the exemption on... Um, um, the earnings that support that pension. So you, oh, you actually have the uh, exempt current pension income exemption granted to that particular fund. That also means that from that date it counts towards the transfer balance cap. Oh, it counts towards it, okay. Okay, yeah. well that's, that's yeah. a, actually a bit of a change. I can imagine the circumstances where that make a big difference. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, prior to the change in the legislation, um, it was uh, a lot of uncertainty about um, the type of the pension is it in retirement phase, not in retirement phase. It's very clear the law didn't actually allow for that pension to be converted to retirement phase right away if it yeah. was reversionary to the spouse. So you had funds that had a reversionary uh, option attached to the pension, but it was not possible to pay it as such to the beneficiary because of this uh, glitch in the law. So yeah, that yeah. Been fixed. Luckily, now we can move forward and uh, um, this. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I suppose ev eventually they get, they do get it right. <laughs> it, yes. Yeah. No, uh, it was, it has been a welcome uh, change in the legislation. Yeah, yeah. Makes things a bit easier. A little bit. <laughs> it makes a different but situation a little bit yes. easier. <laughs> All right. That's right. Well, that's a, it's, a, it's a more complicated topic than I thought, uh, Gabby. But look, thanks very much for clearing all that up for us. Not a problem, Steve. It's been uh, a pleasure. As, as always, it's a pleasure to be updated by on the SMSF front. Uh, uh, that's uh, Gabriel Rusu. And um, thank you for uh, tuning in, listeners. Please join us again next time.